What advantage has the Jew? Sounds like anti-Semitism, except it's not. We really have to understand that Judaism is a religion, not just an ethnicity. And while Christians would never want to purge any ethnicity simply because they are that ethnicity, we definitely do want to reject false teaching. And Judaism, centering itself on the rejection of Jesus Christ as King and Savior, is most definitely false teaching. It is kind of an odd thing, really. You can find amongst the ethnicity of the Jews many different practitioners of their religion. That is, you can find them who take it very seriously and do everything they can to do exactly what Moses said. And you can find them who are atheists, don't even believe in God, but they won't eat anything unclean. And their center unifying point is the rejection of Jesus. They can all agree on that. And again, this should show you very clearly then, uh, Judaism as a religion is, is counter to Christianity. Now, Paul's point is really not about that in Romans chapter 3. He wants to talk a little more about the ethnicity that is being divided by Christianity and Judaism. That is, there are Jews ethnically who are becoming Christians, and there are Jews ethnically who are retaining the Pharisaical teaching that will become what we now call Judaism. And both here in chapter 3 and then in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's going to wrestle with some of the implications of that. Now, for our purposes this morning, let's remember this is in the middle of a section in which he is establishing that on Judgment Day, nobody has any advantages. That there is no partiality with God. That just because you have Abraham as your ethnic father, or just because you are a Germanic Lutheran of a fifth generation, that doesn't mean you're special. It doesn't mean you get out of jail free. The only way one is going to be saved is because Jesus Christ saves you, regardless of who you are and what you've done. And again, that's his point. But we're also getting to that point. He's trying to make it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, that Jew or Greek, pagan, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, man, woman, we all are not good enough. And that's the primary thing he's going to be driving at through chapter 3 today, after he deals with this side point about Judaism, which again he'll bring back in chapter 9. And then toward the end of chapter 3, we're going to have the big shift. Remember I said in the last couple of weeks that the section, the chapter really is chapter 1, 18 through 3.20. That's chapter 1 of Romans, okay? Before that, you have the introduction to Romans, yeah? So we're finishing up that chapter, and then we're going to get to the beginning of chapter 2, which runs from 3.21 to about 4.25. That's the chapter on justification by grace through faith, and it's, it's the meat, let me tell you. It's the good news. It's where the gospel rings, okay? But we're going to start again in the middle of this chapter that's emphasizing sin, Sin. He's not even used the word yet. He's talked about godlessness. He's talked about unrighteousness. He's talked about adultery and homosexuality and sexuality and malice and envy and greed and hating parents. He's, he's listed all that kind of stuff, but he's not used the word sin. He's going to. 
He's going to. But it starts again with this question, what advantage has the Jew? Page 940 in your pew Bible or Romans chapter 3, verse 1 in your personal Bible. Page 940. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Now he's going to give an answer that he'll give a different answer to in a little bit. But he says first, verse 2, much in every way. That is, to be Jewish in his day was definitely an advantage to becoming Christian. That's his point. Not that they have an advantage not as Christians. They have an advantage to becoming Christian. Jesus is very clear about this at other points. He says, I've come for the Jews first. It's true. It doesn't mean he's not there for the Gentile. That's the rest of us. It's just that he did, in fact, come among the Jews. He was one of them. That's an advantage. And as Paul's going to say, um, uh, oh, it's going to be later in the book. I'm sorry. I got dis distracted there by that. He's going to say later in the book that they have the scriptures. They have the oracles of God. They have the covenants. They have all these things to point them to Christ. Yes, that's an advantage. But isn't it an advantage if they do not see Christ? And there the answer is, is no. So later when he's going to ask in this chapter, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? The answer is no. They have an advantage? Yes. What's that? They have the scriptures. Are they better? No. They're exactly the same. They just happen to have the scriptures that point to Jesus. So verse 3, again, this is like chapter 9 stuff. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. 9 is going to get really deep on this. What if some were unfaithful? That's the Jews. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God, right? So God promises the Jews he's going to save them through faith. Some of them don't have faith. Does that mean God was lying? And the answer is no. No. Verse 4, by no means. Let God be true, though every man, everyone were a liar, as it is written, he quotes the Old Testament, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, right? So his emphasis here is that God is true whenever he speaks. And just because we decide to not believe, or we decide to call him a liar, or we decide to take his truth and turn it into a lie, none of that makes him a liar. None of that makes him a liar. He still remains true. So if God promised them that through circumcision, salvation would come, and then they believe it's their personal circumcision rather than the circumcision of Jesus. That doesn't make God wrong. That makes them wrong. And it only proves the point Paul's trying to make all along, that we're all liars. Every one of us is already a liar. If it's up to us to prove God's faithfulness, God would not be faithful. But he doesn't let it rest on us. His faithfulness rests on him. And that's, again, chapter 321 stuff. That's the, the righteousness we're moving toward. All right, so again... This early section's a little dancy. He moves quick. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So here's the way this question comes like today. It's like this. Well, I never heard about Jesus before, or that person never gets to hear about Jesus. It's not fair that they're going to go to hell. How is it fair? What you're doing is you're saying God's a liar. God's unrighteous. Rather than hearing what God says and saying, oh, 
I disagree. That must mean I'm unrighteous. Do you see that the move there? That's the move Paul is making. And so it, it's, it's a little different in the text. The way the text says it is this. So Paul has established that us crucifying Christ, us being sinners, has been answered by God being righteous in the crucifixion. So if our sin brought about the crucifixion, which is great righteousness, doesn't that make God evil since he turned evil into good? Now he says again, I'm speaking like a human trying to get out of the problem. Rather than just receiving what God has said, which is his real point. So again, by no means, verse 6, for then how could God judge the world? The point is not like, how could God judge the world? This point is God's going to judge the world. And so whatever he says, it's true. He's right. There's no, there's no, I get to disagree and call out his logic. That's insanity. His logic is the definition of logic. And so if I think it's illogical, I've proved my failing, not his. Huh? And again, that's, that's Paul's main point. Verse 7. Um, question, though, he doesn't mean this. Like This is like a, a mistake. Um, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Right? This is the, it's his fault, not me. How come those people, not, uh, not others and all this? Trying to turn it around and use the proclamation of the gospel to say God's not fair. God saved you from sin, death, and hell. And all we can do is say God's not fair, right? Uh, he will say their condemnation is just, the people who, who say this, verse, verse 8. Because with it, they will say, why not do evil that any good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Right? So, so those who would say that God is not fair in what he's done in Christ, they deserve what they're going to get in hell. Or those who would say, well, if Christ saving you from sin means your sins don't matter anymore, I guess you can just go do all the sin you want. Yeah, you're going to deserve what you get in hell. We don't even have to really answer you. Uh, on our show yesterday morning, Meredith and I do this Saturday show, and we had a question of someone asking about a friend, an atheist friend, uh, who had said uh, something like, well, if you're just going to go to heaven when you die, why don't all you, all you Christians just kill yourselves? Their condemnation is just. The one who thinks like that. You're not listening. You're not listening. And that's the problem. Uh, when you don't see that circumcision is about Christ, when you don't see that Moses longed for Jesus, well, then you're going to miss the entire thing. So now our reading picked up right here. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, he says. What advantage has the Jew? Much. What's the advantage? They have the scriptures. Does that make them better off? No, not without faith in Jesus. Not even a little bit because, and here's kind of the main point of the whole section, we have already charged that all Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, all are under sin. First use of the word sin in the book of Romans. First use. We're all under it. What is it? He's about to define it in chapter 10 and following. There's this beautiful poem here. And it consists of uh, six lines, four lines, three lines, and one line, all quoted from the Old Testament. Six, line, six lines about everything that has a, a kind of a four lines in the middle of it. So the six lines are the total, but four of the lines begin, there is not, in the Greek. You don't see it in English, but it's there is not, there is not, something, something, there is not, there is not. That's the first section. Second section of four more lines all about your mouth. 
mouth, lips, throat, tongue. All about how what there is not, goodness, shows it forth in what you say. Then there'll be three lines about what you do. That's your feet. There's going to be a feet, path, and way. Think of road when you think of way, right? Three lines about the way of sin. And then one line about the eyes, which is really connected to the heart. Now, what, what do you see? He's going to define it here now for us. Okay, so what is sin? First, the six lines and the there is nots. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All right, so going back to the top of this, let's pile it, pick us apart a little bit. Righteous, righteous as a word. One of the, I, it's the strangest thing. Like it really is true. Like as I've been teaching as a pastor for 15 plus years, there are certain words that are Bible words that are big words that we have trouble with for some reason in English. I think righteous or justified is one of them. I don't know why that is. Because these are words we actually do use. They're not like not out there in the world. Although there's a whole edge of Christianity, they're, they're fools, I think, who say that the average people are too stupid for these words and so we need different words. And I get why they say that, because it's like we get a blinder on the moment we start talking about these words. But at the same time, like the, the dumbest people in the world <laughs> use these words. So I, I'm from California. I, I love to surf. I like to skateboard. And I like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who also like to surf and skateboard. And the, the reason I bring up the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is among them was one named Michelangelo, who was a typical California guy. Cowabunga. Hey, man, what's up? You know, he's just, he's just kind of, oh, I want some pizza. You know, he's, just, he's just dumb. The idea is that he's dumb. The average surfer, the surf bum, is considered to be a man who is mindless and the skateboarder too. And yet, amazingly, when they catch a wave and ride it to the end, they'll shout, righteous. They, they really do. That's what they say. And I still remember, um, it's not Justin Bieber. Oh, who is this guy? He dated Britney Spears. I don't care. There was a guy, he was famous and a singer. About 10 years ago, he came, up, came out with a new album. It was after he broke up with Britney, I think. And the album was called Justified. Yeah, Timberlake, thank you. Someone got it, Timberlake. Now, okay, my point in bringing up that nonsense is like these aren't hard words. They're in the culture. We use them. Why do we not manage to like just grab them as our words then? Why do I have to explain what righteousness is to Christians? I don't know. That's why I'm sharing it with you. I, I don't know. It's, it's strange to me. It's like there's a cloud over it. No one is righteous. What does that mean? Well, the guy who rides the wave has been successful in doing what he wanted to do, and it was great. Huh? 
So it's somewhere between good and great, somewhere between upright and strong, good and great, righteous. Now, the point of the text is that none of us are that. None of us are good. None of us are great. None of us are straight and upright. We're sinful. And he used that word sin a moment ago. Do you remember what sin means? It comes from an Old Testament word that means to miss. As in, there was a group of military men in Israel who were left-handed and all were really good with a sling. And so they could whip a stone around and they would never sin with their stone. That's what it says in the text. They would never sin. But what it means is they would never miss. Because to sin is to miss what? God's righteousness. The glory of God. The way God made the world to be. It's to miss the mark of being good. And this is the emphasis. There is no one who has achieved this. None. No, not one. And then he defines this verse 11 means that we don't understand. One of the chief parts of Lutheran doctrine, when you get into Dr. Francis Pieper talking about sin, is he'll talk about the mind of man being fallen. We think about like the murderer and the adulterer and all this, but it's, it's hard to remember our logic is fallen. Our thinking is falling. We are not capable of seeing straight. And the biggest proof of it is that we think we do. Anyone who's raised kids knows. They know more than anyone, especially when they're five, seven, ten. I mean, God, they've seen it all. And you're sitting there like you can't even see over the counter. What are you talking about? That is not just them. That is a picture of us. We all have this problem of not understanding and thinking we do. Just like we all want to say, I love God. I worship God. I got no problem with God, except for the atheist, who's, that he's a weird duck. But everyone else, so God, God's great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. You know, on we go. That's not what the text is. It says no one sees God. No one really is trying to get to God. Do you remember when God shows up on Mount Sinai and he speaks the Ten Commandments to the people at the foot of the mountain? You remember what they do? They tell Moses to make God shut up. And they say, Moses, you talk to God instead. Don't let him do that anymore. Why? Because his holiness is so extreme that it actually destroyed anyone who touched the mountain. Huh? So the idea that you want to see God, what does Isaiah do? When he sees the Lord high and lifted up in his temple, smoke filling the temple, his robe all over the floor, the angels crying, holy, 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 and the rafters shaking. What does he do? He falls on his face. I'm dead now. I got nothing. Nobody seeks God for that reason. You found him, you wouldn't be excited about it. Not, Not as you are. Now, remember, Christians, Jesus has turned this over for us. Jesus has become the antidote to this. So the Christian in the word of God does begin to understand. You do seek God in Jesus' body and blood according to his own words. Paul is not there yet, though. He's talking about our nature. He's talking about how we're born. He's talking about who we are without Jesus. All have turned aside. We've become worthless. God owes us nothing. He didn't save us because he needed us. No one does good, not even one. The next verse is 13, 14 is about the mouth. And probably the most important thing, aside from the poetry, which is amazing, uh, the most important thing there is this insight from Dr. Luther of how marvelously wicked man is that all of us just desire to hear other people say great things about us. Every single one. We love it when someone says a good thing about us. But we sure like to say bad things about other people. 
And it's strange. It's upside down. You think if we wanted others to say good things about us, we'd want to say good things about them, but we don't. We like to point out all the flaws, and then we wonder why everyone's so mean and cranky. Yeah? And that's a matter of the tongue. James says it's a, it's a world of fire, yeah? a restless evil. And so as Paul's going to say in a moment again, one of the chief things Christianity does is it shuts you up a little bit. Wisdom in Proverbs says a fool is thought wise if he keeps his mouth shut. It's true. It's not just about being wise then. It's about recognizing that what I tend to do by nature is folly. And so I'm going to slow down and let my mouth be guided by the one who is wisdom. Again, Jesus. Jesus. But curses, bitterness, they're in our, in our lips. I mean, here's another good example. Like, um, I've shared with you before, you know, how uh, spilling coffee has become sort of God's particular disciplining of my tongue over the last couple of years, right? Where I've kind of had to realize that I, I just get upset when the coffee is spilt. And, and the thing is, all things work for the good of us in Christ. And so I, I should be able to believe, nope, that was for my good. Now, whatever I thought I was going to do, now I need to clean the coffee and this is for my good. And so I began trying to train my mouth to, instead of saying anything else, to say, hallelujah, whenever I found the spilled coffee. Huh? I've, amazingly, I've spilled less coffee. That's the strange thing. The devil suddenly doesn't want me saying hallelujah or something. I, I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, kind of building on that idea here, isn't it amazing how easy or often you'll catch yourself saying, I don't know what you use, fooey, darn it, an actual cuss word. It doesn't really matter in a sense. You have something happen and you're like, you get it. but something comes off your tongue, right? It's at the very least in your head. And yet when something amazing happens, how many hallelujahs come out? Not, not when the bad thing happens. Something amazing happens. <laughs> uh, I found out my accountant was wrong with my taxes this year. And it was good news. Let me tell you, it was, it was good news. And I did, I said, hallelujah, but it took me like three minutes and I had to remember that I should do that. It didn't just come out of my mouth right away. Our tongues are upside down. They're not looking to praise. They're not looking to bless. They're looking to curse. This is the fact of our sin. And even Christians then aren't freed from that in a sense where it's not here anymore. We are aware of it so we can begin to fight it. Yes. Similarly, then, we want to fight the tendency of our feet to shed blood. That is, to go and fix it, to go and get justice, to go and make it right. As soon as something's wrong, I'm going to make it right, and my anger will rise to see that it's right. But what happens when we do that is we tend to do more wrong. We repay evil for evil, and things descend and spiral into, indeed, innocent blood being shed, being the the common factor within the world today, all days. The way of peace we don't know. We don't know how to make peace with our enemies. And all of this because, verse 18, there's no fear of God. The fear of God. Uh, this is a phrase that is so valuable. We, we want to love the fear of God. We want to be afraid of God. And, and there's, I, I, I did it in the first service. I don't want to repeat it all. There's, there's a number of explanations for this. Um, but I don't know that any of them gets to the cross quite right. But the, the one that is best is this. Like, if you're in a dangerous situation and you need to be saved, right? So uh, there is, uh, you're at a bar in Rockford and there's a shooting. Happens. You're at a bar in Rockford and there's a shooting and you need someone to stop the shooter. That person that's going to be able to do that is stronger than you. And in that regard, they're somewhat dangerous 
and in fact, worthy to be afraid of. They're fearful. They're fearful enough that when they go to stop the shooter, the shooter stops. So apply that thinking to God. You don't want a God who you can't be afraid of. He's a limp-wristed, weak, incompetent God then. You need a God who you should be afraid of. Like again, Isaiah falling down. Woe is me. What's he afraid of? Well, his sin. And yes, as a Christian, you know that you are free from this. And John says that perfect love drives out fear, which is true. So you have the fear of God, which causes you not to run away from God, but to run to him as your protector. And we never want to lose that. That that is not not fear. It is. It is to recognize how great and powerful and dangerous and good he is. Reminds me of an example that I didn't say in the first service. If any of you like uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, there's a point early in the first story where these four children are in a magical world and they hear about this character named Aslan, who is effectively Jesus. Um, and they find out that he's a lion. And one of the little girls gets very scared. She says, oh, is he safe? And uh, the beaver, it's a beaver who's talking to her. Uh, the beaver says, oh, no, 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 he's not safe. But he's good. Yeah. That's the idea, right? The fear of the Lord. And that awareness is not in humanity. It's missing entirely. But that's what the gospel restores. With him there is forgiveness, therefore he is feared, the psalmist says. And let's, let's get to that gospel. It's coming here in just a few moments. First, verses 19 and 20, this is the, the thesis point. This is where he's been driving since chapter 1, verse 18. This is the entire idea of these three chapters. Now we know that whatever the law, think Old Testament, says, it speaks to those who are under the law, think Old Testament, including the commands, so that... Every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, Old Testament commandments, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, Old Testament commandments, comes knowledge of, there's that word, sin again. He's working on us having a knowledge of sin and seeing that that knowledge is awakened in us when we try to be good and find out that we can't. And the advantage that the Jew had was they had God say, be good just like this, and they still couldn't do it. So they could see it more clearly than anybody else in the entire world. Yeah, But the point of that law being given to Jew and to Gentile is to stop up our mouths. Remember how the tongue is the problem. And part of the problem of the tongue isn't just that we like to speak bad about everybody else, it's that we want to tell God how it is, we want to tell God why we're okay after all. We want to justify ourselves with our excuses. And the law is revealed in order to say, shut up. God knows your problem. He knows your sin. And he hasn't burned you yet because he has a plan. But you're never going to be able to hear the plan while you're busy telling him how you're okay. And how it was, okay. It was all those other people's fault. Yada, yada, blame, 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 yeah? So every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable. Judgment day is coming. God will judge the world. There is no partiality. And if you want to stand on what you did, 
then you're going to get what you deserve. That's for everybody. Christianity is the promise that God doesn't want you to stand on what you did. He wants you to stand on what Christ did for you. We're, we're almost there. It's like, it's like one verse away right now. Yeah. But first, he wants to emphasize this point, and there should be no question. doesn't matter what James 2 says. doesn't matter what Romans 2 says. It stands, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Yeah, but James 2 says he, the man is justified by his works. Yeah, in his neighbor's sight. He's talking about his life with other people, not with God. But Romans 2 says, he who does good works will be justified. Yes, and then he says, and no one can do it. So you have to take the whole Bible. You have to have all the verses. And this verse is one of them. And it's such good news. But it is what the Reformation is about. It's why Lutherans exist as opposed to Roman Catholics. It's why Lutherans exist as opposed to Methodists and Baptists as well at the end of the day. Because at the end of the day, we insist that no matter what we do, it will not be enough. We must have Christ be the one to give us faith, both now in the moment of conversion, in the moment of sanctification, in every single moment. It is reliant upon him, not on us. He must increase, we must decrease. It's not about you, it's about Jesus for you. Through the law, as through you, comes knowledge of missing the mark, sin. Now, verse 21, right? New chapter. New chapter. But now. And you can highlight that. But now. It's, it's the same in the Greek. They're inverted. It's now but. But, but now. Everything is different because of Jesus. Everything he was saying about this is without Jesus. Everything he was saying about this is how man stands on his own. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means revealed apart from the law. Skip to verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, why did I skip? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's true. It's just not the main thought. It's it's a tangential thought. So I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to skip it again. I want you to just read the main thought first. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, what did I skip? That the law and the prophets bear witness to that. That is, the Old Testament says the same thing. This isn't new news that God has to save us. It just has happened now. The Old Testament, he's promising that he's going to save them. It just hasn't happened yet. But now it has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of David not staying in the grave anymore. That death and resurrection of Jesus is God's righteousness. God's righteousness, his goodness, greatness, uprightness, faithfulness, steadfastness, mercy, loving kindness. It's his righteousness given through the faith, I would translate it, of Jesus to you who believe in Jesus. The first faith of Jesus, though, that's first. It's Jesus' faith on the cross that saves you. It's his human faith that saves you. He can only have that human faith perfectly because he's also God. I'm not denying that he's also God. But as God, he has fully taken man into himself and everything that man has, he has. So that includes then faith in the Father. 
Yeah? And it is his trust in the Father through the cross that is his activity to save you. And it is him doing that for you that you believe. Yes? And by believing he did that for you, it restores you to a place where you can begin to put that kind of trust in the Father too. Out of faith, into faith. Out of his faith, into your faith. That's Romans chapter 1 again. Main point of the whole book. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus for all who believe. Because regarding the law, verse uh, 23 is going to say, it starts in verse 22, there is no distinction for all have sinned, all miss the mark, and fall short of the glory of God. Right? He's already established this. We spent three weeks now establishing this. Everybody goes to hell on their own works. But also, all, you got to import that all to the, from verse 23 to verse 24, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, when I say all are justified, does that mean all are saved? No. There are some who will not believe. And that's a long conversation and an extra long debate against the Calvinists that we can talk about sometime. It's great. Right? But for the moment, just see that he all are, are dead without him. All are going to hell without him. And in him, there's nobody left out. Anybody who comes is in. Anybody who believes is in. There's nobody who's kept out because of their color, their race, their sex. All are justified by his grace. That means by his love, by his charity, by his positive disposition toward you as a gift. That means for free. Right? Gifts don't have strings attached. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That is the purchasing power. The buying of something through the redemption that is in this same Christ Jesus. Where is the redemption taking place? That's verse 25. Is where did he buy you? Well, when God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. So what are you bought with? What is the redemption? Is the shedding of blood on Calvary, on Golgotha, on Good Friday, Green Hill far away and all that stuff. That was where he bought you. And now, you know, don't miss it, Lutheran, that the blood that bought you then buys you again now as it comes to you according to his word in the mystery of bread and wine. Yeah. Jesus bought us at the cross, but you're saved today. Yeah. You're saved today as his word and his sacrament continue to come to you to awaken in you faith in his faith through his faithfulness as the act of God's faithfulness to you, that's the end of the verse, to be received by faith. This, verse 25 in the middle, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This, that doesn't mean God winked an eye at sins long ago. This means that God's entire intention all along has been to pass over sins. The Passover <laughs> happened as an image of him passing over sins. And this passing over of sins, this forgiveness, shows his righteousness. It shows how good he is. That he can create a world, have the head of that world say, I hate you, I'm going to do it myself, and run into eternal fire, and he will get in the way of the eternal fire and stop it from happening. That's how righteous he is. 
Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, that's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, so that he, that's God, might be just, that's righteous, that's good, and the justifier, the one who makes righteous and makes good, of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is, the law is true. He's going to hold people accountable to it. If you want to be saved by the law, you'll get exactly what you deserve. But he also is going to give grace to all. And that comes through what Jesus has done and the proclamation of what Jesus has done. And those who hear that and believe that, they're no longer under the law. They've passed from death to life. They're in a new place altogether. They're a new human race. You're no longer Adam. You're one with Jesus. You are the body of Christ. Yeah. Verse 27, getting close to the end. Then what becomes of our boasting? Right, so do we have a right to like pat ourselves on the back for any of this? Do I get to say, well, look how far I've come, not like those other people? No, it, it is excluded. There's no place for boasting in yourself. Now, Paul will say in another place, I will boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus. So there's a place for boasting, but it's not in you. You boast in Christ. You boast in what he has said, what he has done, alleluia and all this. He is risen, by the way. He is risen. Alleluia. Okay, so, but for our parts, our life as Christians is not about, look at us, we're Christians, we're better than all those other people who are wicked. It's, there are the wicked, and we've been saved by Jesus. Uh, see the difference in those two statements. And he asks, it's going to get a little confusing here. He's going to use the word law a lot. He says, boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? What's the rule that makes boasting excluded? A, a law of works? Is that just another rule? Like you shall not boast. That's the one rule. No, but by the law of faith. Faith in Christ doesn't boast himself. It, it just won't. It boasts in him instead. Yeah. For, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There it is, plain as day. Lutheran Reformation, Roman Catholic teaching, you got to buy your salvation through indulgences and submit to the Pope. It's all a lie. Just a big fat lie trying to deceive you and steal your money. It's really always been about the money. Yeah. Does that mean Catholics aren't Christians? No, Catholics go to church. They believe Jesus is risen just like we do. But they don't believe this and it hurts their consciences. It hurts their faith. It weakens them. So you, since you know it, be strong. Know that there is no one justified apart from, uh, sorry, know that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Know that Jesus has you, that what he's done is sufficient, that you are saved. Huh? Now he's going to get back into this Jew-Gentile thing in verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? But is this salvation only for the Jews? The answer is No. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one, a reference to what's called the great Shema. Uh, it's a statement out of Torah. Uh, Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? So there's only one God. He's the God of all mankind is the point there. This one God who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jew, by faith. Same way that he will justify the uncircumcised. That's you and me. Even if you've been circumcised as a kid, you're not a Jew, right? You'll be also saved by faith, that is, through trust in Jesus. Verse 31 is going to lead into like chapter 5 and 6, but do we then overthrow this law by this faith? That is, do we get rid of good works? His answer, by no means. 
On the contrary, we uphold the law. Again, this is going to lead into a lot more conversation, chapter 5, 6, and 7, where, no, being saved from evil doesn't mean evil's awesome, let's do more of it. And only a fool would say that their condemnation is just. And anybody who wants to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm also this, and that makes me a better Christian than you, that person is, well, they're blind. They're boasting in themselves. And they potentially can destroy not only their faith, but the faith of others. Jesus has come to be the one who fulfilled all things for for us, to propitiate that is satisfy the wrath of God by his blood, to be the redemption price of your soul, eternal life, and body, and to make it so that you are indeed set apart from the massive road that the wicked will continue to go on as they continue to try to justify themselves by their works, even into the very grave, which will will swallow them whole. Don't know if that's my favorite way to end this. I kind of want to circle around again and talk about Jesus some more. Uh, and I, I get how, I mean, if you had some trouble with that, the parts about Judaism in this, that, that's okay. He's really writing to people who have a problem that we don't experience in our congregation, at least, right? Um, we don't have an issue of there being half of us Jewish Christians and half of us not Jewish Christians, and the Jewish Christians think they're better than everybody else. We, we don't have that problem. I would say that in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there is an issue at times with um, some looking down our noses at things. It happens. And certainly there's a a Germanic history to the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And at times I've seen places where the Germanness matters more than the Lutheranness. And and that is a problem. That's a major problem. We're not here because we're Germans. We're here because we believe that the Bible is true. And we believe the Bible is true because he is risen. Hallelujah. So we take the word that he has given us out of his gracious revelation. And we realize now we're those who have an advantage much in every way that we have the scriptures. But we also will understand then the scriptures without Jesus do you no good. Because they're here to point you to Jesus. And where do you find Jesus? Is Is it this wooden statue on a cross? I mean, he'll remind you of the real Jesus and what he did. Where is the real Jesus? He is ascended to the highest heaven, ruling over all things. So if you want to find him, what do you do? Well, first you pray, because you know he's going to hear you, because you're baptized into his name. But see, there's where you find Jesus. You're baptized into his name. That's how you find Jesus. And as I've said before this morning, and now I'm going to say it again as we're about to go to it, if you really want to find Jesus, he's in the bread and wine. He's there every time and has been there all along, because he wants you to be confirmed in him. He doesn't want you to wonder where he is. He wants you to know that he has bought you by his blood, that you are his, and that this is God's righteousness by grace out of his faith for your faith to be strengthened. In the name of Jesus.